But that could well drive the EFF into the arms of the ANC in 2024. I was labelled desperate. That opening quote is quite dramatic. I didn't even look at it. I didn't care to look at it. I just wanted to know what the verdict was. The DA might be criticised for giving us the ANC again. I worry about the possibility of an ANC-EFF national government. You just can't script South African politics sometimes. <laughs> the Caesar and Bofu Welsh Experience Podcast. Spread the fire. Welcome back to SMWX. And today I'm very excited to be speaking to the current mayor of Johannesburg, Dr. Mpo Palazze. Dr. Palazze, thank you very much for coming on SMWX. Thank you. It feels weird when you call me the current mayor because for the last three weeks, everyone was calling me former mayor. And I was like, hmm, I'm not so sure, but it's okay for now. So, yes. It's a kind of interesting lesson in the way that political office moves when you're in this game. I guess so. I mean, it's it's a rude awakening. Mm. I don't think that anyone goes into office preparing for such turbulence and uncertainty. Mm. I think when you go in, you go in with a vision and you think you're just going to go in and roll it out. Mm. But there's so many moving parts and it is what it is. What's it felt like? Um, what did it feel like? Take us into, you know, what it's like to be mayor one day, not mayor the next, and then mayor again. Uh, like, what's it actually been like on a personal level? I actually don't think I've had time to process because, you know, from the day we were ousted, there was a battle. And it was first the legal battle and then the political battle. I don't think I've had time for Mpo. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I just had to get on with the battle, you know, and get on with the business of winning the city back. So it's been hectic. It's been hectic. We had to sit, strategize, look at what was done wrong and how we're going to approach the legal battle. I had a lot of support from the Democratic Alliance. They made um, a legal team available and resources and so on. So that was really great. And, um, yeah, and we set up a war room here and we had a whole fight back campaign with our councillors and activists. So it was good in that sense. It brought us together. Um, it gave us a reason to, you know, push for something and fight for something. And when we won, it was r- a huge relief uh, because as much as we knew we had a good case, you just never know, um, especially with the judicial system. So it was really a huge relief. I think it was it, it was affirming, you know, for us and also just just in terms of the country's um, own state, you know, the state of the judiciary and its independence. And yeah, I was really encouraged by the win. But as you know, the legal battle is not the only battle. So there's still the political battle. So even with the win, you know, and, and I was chatting with one of our counselors yesterday and, and she was like, have you celebrated? And I'm like, minimally, because, you know, because there's always that, what if you're out again in the next few days and you know there's already another motion that's being tabled as we speak. There's a programming meeting that's sitting Mm. this afternoon to consider that motion and they'll probably bring it to a council meeting next week sometime. So you're in limbo all the time. So it is quite unsettling, but even more so when you want to implement programs Mm. because I I feel like even with officials, they're working, but they're 
also anticipating that there will be another disruption. So nobody is really settled and and a sense it because the momentum is not quite where I'd like it to be. Um, but I have to be sensitive as well to where people are because it's real, you know, and it's happening to them and it's their workspace and it's turbulent. I mean, think about the officials who were in a mayoral committee meeting that morning with the Dada Morero administration. And just after the opening remarks, they get a message, the court judgment is out. You are not the real mayoral committee. Yeah. And, and then it's over. And then that evening at six o'clock, there's the real mayoral committee. Think about those officials, the city manager, the senior managers. So they're going through a lot. And I think, I don't think we, we've all processed what we're going through. Where were you when you heard the court judgment? Were you in the court or did someone tell you about it? And what was that like? So the judge gave us the option to either get it remotely through email or to come into court, should we so desire. But both parties felt there was no need. So I was actually at home. Um, yeah, I got a message that it would come out around half past nine. So and you knew it was coming that day? Yeah, I got the message. I, I believe I got it. Um, the night before or early that morning, I can't remember, but I had meetings in the morning, so online meetings, which I took from home and yeah, and I was sort of on the lookout. And as soon as it came through, I read through it. I went right to the end, so I didn't read through all the pages. I went right to the judgment itself. That opening quote is quite dramatic. I didn't even look at it. I didn't care to look at it. I just wanted to know what the yeah. verdict was. And, and I read each and every single line. And with each one, I was like, justice is served. Justice is served. All the way to the last, to the court, the cost order. Um, I really felt like that was justice for our residents. So it felt really good. And and then, of course, I had to get ready. I had a whole diary, uh, which was part of the fightback campaign, which we had to then change around because now the focus had changed and my phone was ringing off the hook. And suddenly I was mayor again, mm. you know. And, and again, you don't get time to process. You must get into um, the position to start moving. So that evening we had a mayoral committee meeting. Mm. Well, at least you know that we are real people because we invited you when you weren't mayor. <laughs> and now you are mayor. So we were like, okay. I'm so grateful for that. And, you know, you get to see who's who mm. in your life, even in your workspace. Mm. So there's people who relate to can imagine. the office. Mm. And there's people who relate to Paul. And I think this, the last three weeks was defining uh, for a lot of relationships. Mm. So Now you get to actually be back in office but know that, yes. which is yes. useful. Yeah. On the judgment, um, it's an interesting judgment, and I think many people have assumed, well, it's just a procedural thing, but it seems to me it goes deeper than that, and it has quite wide-ranging implications um, on 2024, for example. I know there's a political battle, but what do you think is the significance of this judgment for the intersection between law and politics? I think that a lot of politicians take the fact that we operate within a legal framework for granted. Um, I think a lot of times we overlook a lot of wrong that happens in our council meetings, for instance, and nobody really stands up and acts. So if you look at how my fight back campaign was taken by people, it wasn't appreciated by many people. In fact, I was labeled desperate, you know, um, I'm, I, I, I'm hanging on to power. I want to, I don't want to let go of the salary and so on. All kinds 
kinds of negative things where you would expect more positive vibes around the fact that actually somebody is actually saying no, this is not going to happen and we're going to stand up and fight. So so this for me says, and, and we had counsel yesterday, interesting, mm. and even though it wasn't perfect, you could see with the speaker's conduct yesterday that the court judgment has had an impact on how she conducts the business of counsel. She now knows she's not going to get away. Can, with can I just ask, what was that moment like with the speaker who's obviously broken away? She's still presiding. You're now the mayor. I watched that and I was like, you just can't script South African politics sometimes. <laughs> I know. Did I you know. did you did you speak to her? Did did you have any interaction? Unfortunately, not yesterday mm. because she came in through the back, through through her lounge okay. into the speaker's chair. But I have to respect her seat. You know, and so there's protocols around council and around how we behave around the speaker, and I have to respect that. It doesn't matter what happened. Um, she is the speaker of council, and the good thing with her election is that the, it was done procedurally, so sure. so she is the speaker, and none of us can can object to that. And we have to honour the role and the office, and and treat it with the dignity that it deserves. Mm. And sorry, you were you were also still saying about the council and seeing the impact of the court judgment on the way that the proceedings have happened. So you think that that's kind of had a, a subconscious or even a conscious impact in the way council's working? I think conscious more than subconscious, because you can see, even with the motion that they're bringing now, mm -hmm. that they are calculating, you know, the notice towards the programming meeting, the notice towards the council meeting. It hasn't been called yet. So you can see they're now observing the rules. And, and for me, that's the real victory, is that we get to exist in an orderly space where, where law and order is upheld. And, and that for me is a big, big victory. And this could matter for 2024 because if the ANC, um, some of us would say hopefully, is removed from power, um, this, this could come back. We could have a national version of what we've seen in Joburg. We could see court cases. We could see someone's the president one day, they're not the president the next. And so this all has quite important national uh, implications. I worry about that. And, the, you know, I was chatting to the leader of executive business, MMC Leonat, yesterday. I, I was going through Twitter and somebody actually pointed that out, you know, that, that if this is what's going to happen in 2024, it's really concerning. And I think um, to some extent you can... You can absorb it at a local level, mm. but I can't imagine a situation where you have a president one day and then for 25 days you have another president and then that other one comes back. I think the impact would be much bigger and it, it says that we need to get our ducks in a row as a country and face the reality that the politics of this nation has changed. Mm. Um, the laws of the country need to adapt to speak to the current realities. So I've been giving this example a lot at the last um, DA mayoral breakaway, we had guests from Denmark and we had a lady guest speaker who was a former mayor, current deputy mayor. And we got to engage because Denmark has had coalitions forever. Um, and, um, and she said something interesting. She said, in Denmark, you're not allowed to table a motion of no confidence in a sitting mayor. A mayor has to finish their term. And she even went as far as to say that even if you're sick and you want to resign, you need permission from council to wow. do so. And they reserve the right to refuse. So I found that quite interesting, but it speaks to stability and why they're able to, in spite of the coalition nature of their governments, they're able to see their program of action through. I do think that what's happening now, if the lawmakers are not waking up 
to the reality that they have to start um, thinking about what legislation looks like and what sort of support there is for stability um, at a national and provincial level, I'd be very worried if, if they're not getting some work done right now. On this question of the stability of coalitions, um, you came out recently speaking about a proposal that you had to bring the EFF into some kind of relationship of support um, to rebuild your government. And it seems that that was rebuffed by FedEx. Is that true? Um, take us into that big media storm, what's true, what's not true, um, and help us understand that. Yeah. So the Democratic Alliance's highest decision-making body is the FedEx. The FedEx is made up of 20-odd um, mandated decision-makers from different parts of the country. They represent different provinces and so on. So there's fair representation. And the idea is that when a proposal is brought to the FedEx, it's debated upon robustly, and, and then a decision is made. Now, I, I made the proposal initially through Helen Ziller um, before I went myself to present to the FedEx, and I think it was on Thursday that she called an emergency FedEx. And I was caught up in other things because there's so much happening all at the same time, so I couldn't be there. But it's also not um, orthodox for me to attend FedEx. I'm not a member of the FedEx, so ordinarily your provincial leaders and various other leaders would represent whatever proposal that you have. And I think that's not always understood because the fact that I wasn't there was seen by many as some kind of oppression or suppression by DA leadership when in fact it's standard practice. And, and so it was taken to the FedEx and I got the outcome, I think um, it's the same day that unfortunately FedEx did not support the proposal. And I immediately then said, because I'm a fighter, right, I said, well, I hear you, but um, I'd like to go and speak to them myself, you know, and see if I won't have better luck this time. And, and so I made the request on Friday and it, it finally happened this week sometime and I went and I presented presented to the FedEx myself. Okay. Um, again, um, very unorthodox. Um, I think, um, you know, it's, 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 not, it's not something that's done every day, that mayors come and make representations, but I certainly think that it's something we should consider going forward. Yeah. Um, and so I did, and unfortunately, um, that evening, very late, I got the response that unfortunately they have not changed their minds. Mm. Mm. Do you think that's a pity? Well, the fact that I made the proposal in the first place means that I, I felt that that's something that could potentially save the city. Mm. Um, it's, it's unfortunate that we don't share the view with members of the FedEx, uh, but the FedEx is, is the highest decision-making body in the party, and we all need to align with FedEx resolutions. Yeah, it's interesting because obviously 24, 2024 is around the corner, and I've been having lots of conversations with my guests about What's going to happen? You know, let's let's assume the ANC does lose power. Um, it's quite possible that we could have a DA president, and then it's quite possible that South Africa could have a white man president, and that may be great and wonderful, and we can all sing kumbaya. But it would it would be a significant symbolic moment that some people would think is a bit too soon, especially if the DA didn't win a majority. And then I think to myself, well, you are, you know, a prominent DA leader. What if they put you forward, for example? So that's one trajectory I see. But the other trajectory I see is 
I sat in this very office interviewing Musi Maimane two years ago, um, and he had this look of frustration, like he was really trying, but it just wasn't, it wasn't landing. Um, so I'm just putting those two scenarios to you. Um, do you think either one of them is possible? I think anything is possible. Um, you know, we we have our Congress next year, so it's still it's still a bit of a way off. Um, I'm not sure who's going to put their hand up. Uh, people must put their hands up um, and and contest in the Congress. Um, I do think John will put his hand up, but I do think that there needs to be other people that put their hand up as well. Let's see who comes out. You know, as the leader of the party, taking us into the election. Um, is South Africa ready, as, if that's what you're asking? I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, but here's what I think. From just the time I've spent engaging with voters, residents, if you look at a Chris Pappas, mm. Chris Pappas is well-liked by everybody. Chris Pappas is white. Um, you ask yourself, what is it about Chris Pappas that people like? And when I look at Chris, and I love Chris, and I've spent time with him, Chris is relatable. And Chris is invested in black people. So invested, he speaks the language. He probably knows the culture better than myself as a black person. I mean, some of his anecdotes are unbelievable. Just the lengths to which he will go to understand, you know, black people in his environment. And, and I think that trust is a big factor in in the politics of today and I think people can trust a Chris Pappas because it's not about the color of your skin you know it's about do you see me do you care about me show me but don't tell me show me I want to see it in your day-to-day -day lived experience that you are for me and you are with me you know and, I, and and that's what I think it's about so I don't think it's about race as much as it's about um, believability and relationships and true investment in diversity. It'll certainly be an interesting question because we're going to have to choose that scenario possibly or whether we want this ANC government, which I've been saying for a very long time has betrayed South Africans. And it gets me to thinking of 2024 more broadly because it feels like we may have a similar situation again nationally where if the DA is intent on separating itself from the EFF for understandable reasons, it doesn't want its constituency to think it, uh, it condones the EFF's extreme behavior. <laughs> um, understood. But that could well drive the EFF into the arms of the ANC in 2024. Um, and that, that scares me too, because we would be sending the message to the ANC if they held on to power that everything you've done is okay. And in fact, we're going to reward you with more power. Yeah. And so the DA might be criticized for giving us the ANC again. I, I worry about the possibility of an ANC-EFF national government or even provincial government. Um, I worry very much about that. So we, we need to find a better alternative. And I think, I think what's playing out now is a practical lesson. Mm. And, and whether we're having the conversations or not, I think people are thinking about 
what does this really, really mean for 2024? And I believe that it's going to shape our behavior between now and then. I think what we're seeing now, we lost Johannesburg. Yes, we got it back through a court order, but we're still faced with a political battle. We lost the Guruleni. You know, there's rumors, Mkhala City is next, Twani is next. So I do think that we're starting to think about, okay, let's let's be real, what's going on and, and what does it mean for 2024 and what sort of concessions do we need to make or what sort of conversations do we need to make to have with our constituencies um, and and I'm, I'm getting calls from DA supporters who are saying to me defy the democratic alliance you know we worried we don't want the NC back in power so that for me is also quite interesting because mm. we're protecting our constituency yet we're having some of our members saying don't listen to them you know do your own thing so so I do think that we're going to be having lots of tough and crucial conversations in the next few months mm. yeah can you help us understand as well how the the coalition itself broke apart in Joburg the coalition that you led again I think sometimes politicians are better political analysts than we who claim to be political analysts um, and we had Bongani Baloya of Action SA on the show last week and he was saying that look maybe the coalition was a bit too rigid around certain questions he thinks the coalition underestimated Colleen Makubela uh, he thinks there should have been more flexibility um, and he thinks that the coalition could have survived if there was a little bit more flexibility um, do you agree with that or do you think that maybe you stood on principle you know, rightly. I do think we stood on principle rightly. I don't think that you can enter into a marriage without a marriage contract. I think that would be very dangerous. And and if you have a marriage contract, I think you need to stick to it, you know. Um, and so I don't think that... Um, I get the, the rigidity versus flexibility argument and I think there's lots of room to be flexible and I think we have been where it was reasonable to be and I always use the example of the city manager recruitment process where we probably had the best candidate in the country you know for Johannesburg but there, there, were, there were coalition partners who were not happy in Johannesburg about this person being the city manager because of things that were not necessarily true they thought he's from Cape Town he must be DA and and, and so on and so forth and, and it was completely false but these were perceptions and perceptions needed to be managed to a point of even compromising and letting go of the candidate and allowing Twani to bring them on board. Mm. That's flexibility because legally we could have gone ahead, you know. I know there were issues about, oh, but you met with the candidate and even that we got a legal opinion that actually there was nothing wrong that happened there. Now, but does flexibility mean that you completely ignore provisions of a coalition agreement, you know, in a crisis situation where you're under tremendous pressure, you don't have the luxury of time to think your decision through, think about its impact on the rest of the country where you may have relationships. We've got relationships with the IFP in, in KZN, as an example. It's not an, a simple, straight-line type decision. And 
and and I respect that the coalition agreement has provision for a review. Sure. And and the idea was that we should come back to to the drawing board and say, okay, what's working, what isn't working, what what tweaks do we need to make going forward? And and the Democratic Alliance believed that that would be an opportune time to have those discussions and not in a crisis situation where we've just lost the speaker and we have to now replace the speaker. You know, the Democratic Alliance felt let's stick to what's in the coalition agreement and as per the agreement the speaker position belonged to the Democratic Alliance and I know there's a whole argument about but those were elected before the agreement was signed yes and they were but when we negotiated the rest of the positions in the in the agreement mm. we we bore that in mind the fact that we already have a DA mayor speaker and chief whip and so we were not going to go for the chair of chairs we were not going to go for more than five MMCs ir irrespective of, of the fact that we had more than 50 percent of the seats in the coalition. So all of that was calculated into the final coalition agreement, which everybody signed, by the way, and, and we signed when everyone was satisfied. So it's it, we, we just could not understand how at this time of crisis, we're now suddenly not happy. The DA has too many positions. Why was it not raised when when the coalition agreement was put together and signed it? Why did you sign, you know, if you had that issue? So, and why, why, why not wait for the review to bring those things up and then we do it properly? So, so yeah, so I, I think flexibility is good and I think there has been a lot of flexibility. I don't think people realize um, how much flexibility there is because we don't talk about um, the inner workings of the coalition. Um, I don't think we're rigid at all. I, I personally have given a lot of concessions. No, thank you for explaining um, your perspective on it. And it's fascinating. I'm trying to piece together exactly how this all worked. And um, it's interesting to hear from your side. And I think some of those concessions haven't actually been raised. Um, so, you know, I felt a strange thing when the government, uh, or, or the sorry, the the council and the coalition broke apart because I live in Joburg, oh. um, and I have to admit, suddenly potholes that had been there for a long time were being fixed. I saw parts of highways that you know that I'd never seen before that had been weeded, and I didn't even realize there was actually like land underneath. underneath. Um, and you got a sense that at least someone is trying, despite the, the, the backlogs and all of that. So I think you did succeed in demonstrating a commitment to governance, which I got a bit worried when the ANC came back in. Um, and suddenly I'm seeing one or two potholes, you know, once again. What do you think Joburg actually needs in order to get back on its feet? And what was that process of, of trying to rebuild, even in a short space of time, like? Joburg needs commitment. Um, one of the promises I gave to residents is that I will not abandon them, because this is not a short-term project. The kind of backlogs we're dealing with are as old as the time the ANC has been in power. We've seen infrastructure that was neglected, not maintained, no repairs um, over years, and now our infrastructure backlog is why we're having electricity problems and, and water outages and so on. And that's the reality. But the reality also is that we're not going to fix it in one year. 
not even in one term of office. So you need someone who can be in it for the long haul. Now, I trained as a medical doctor, and my favorite place to be in, in a hospital setting was casualty. I liked it because it gives you immediate immediate um, outcomes. You know, you, you, you have somebody in hypoglycemia, you give them glucose, and suddenly they're alive. And they came in, they were unconscious. And then I moved from clinical medicine to public health medicine. Public health medicine is public administration with a focus on health care. And one of the first things we were told is that some of the things you're going to implement, you will not see the results. Because you've moved away from clinical medicine, you've moved into a space where you may develop a policy today whose impact will only be seen by your children or maybe their children. Yeah. And I think that's the kind of outlook you need for where Joburg is now. Unfortunately, our residents don't always understand, but I also get that they're frustrated. They're angry. You know, they've been done in for far too long. Um, and that's why communication with residents is so important. I've found that each time I've had a public meeting and I've explained to people in very simple terms, our infrastructure backlog is $300 billion. Our capital budget for this year is $7.7 billion. Suddenly, you get that aha moment. They get it. And they're a lot more sympathetic and more supportive, less abusive, you know, and you, you suddenly have a team that's moving with you and they're taking responsibility. What can we do to help? Can we keep our streets clean? Can we join Arasabit saying the cleanup campaign once a month? You build a community of builders who are working together to repair a city. You don't need politicians who are focusing on tenders, contracts, um, cater deployment, and all those things. That's not what Johannesburg needs right now. Joburg is broken. It's broken and it needs to be fixed. And it's not going to be a one day, one year, one term of office job. You need um, patience and, and, and you need somebody who's in it for the long haul. Dr. Palazzi, the current and potentially future mayor of Joburg, thank you very much for joining our audience on SMWX. Thank you. Aye, aye. The Caesar and Welsh Experience Podcast. Aye, aye, aye.